Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 479 of the Constructor Criticism Podcast. I'm your host, Heezy, and I'm joined by one of my best friends, the longest-running co-host of Constructor Criticism, by probably a pretty huge margin at this point, Mason Clark. What's up? Five months until episode 500. Four you months. Know what? Yes. I, I appreciate that a lot more than, like, the, the number of episodes to the new set. You can do that one. Oh, you mean you. three? <laughs> <laughs> the three is the answer. <laughs> I have to until draft until play boosters. I'll tell you soon. You know, <laughs> probably pretty close to five hundred. So if people are, uh, I want to mention that really quickly because it was a really funny tweet, like just a few minutes before we went live, of Mark Rosewater clarifying, and he's like, "I just want to be clear that nobody at Wizards is trying to kill draft. Nobody as was trying to kill draft. I was just mm-hmm. talking about a trend of sales." I just think it's funny. Magic players will like take a one sentence and just like Hasbro wants to get rid of limited forever. I will say Mark worded his sentence. Not the best for a man who is a professional writer at one point in his life. It definitely the first time I read it was like, and I thought about some stuff and I was like, that doesn't seem right. And then I thought about how uh, set boosters sold more than draft boosters. And I was like, that's probably what Mark meant. Yeah, it was pretty funny. You know, it, always improving moment on his part. You know, that is the point of this show is to be getting better. You know, always there's always an opportunity to improve. And, you know, hopefully uh, Mark won't, you know, light the Twitter sphere on fire. Uh, but, you know, I should thank him because I was really getting sick of my uh, my notification bell ringing. So really, thank you, Mark. Nice. Yeah. Well, what did, tweet. What, did you, <laughs> fair. what did you do this week to be always improving this one? Well, I worked on always improving by actually taking some time to sit down and play more hard scales with a decent bit of focus. I uh, was I played FNM uh, with my Doctor Who precon, which was a fun little experience. You know, I got to excite, interact with the part of medic I don't normally do. And I was done. I was like, all right, I did my, my thing. It was fun. And it was like 8.30 or whatever. And I was like, I have a whole night ahead of me. And I was like, well, I think I'm going to actually sit down and play hard and scales with a lot of focus with nothing else going on and work on that and really just try to find it. And I end up putting away the 5-0 like, <laughs> like three hours later because the leak took forever. But um, it, it was just a good experience to sit there once again and really focus on that and take the time just to think about everything that I can do with the hard and scales deck. Because we just talk about how, well, I this, we talk about how you should practice the way you're going to play. And I talk about how hard and scales is like brain melting for me personally when I play it. And so to like really give it the full attention, because sometimes what I do with that is to get the experience, I might not give it everything because there's just so much. It's just like, I just need to like experience stuff right now. There's too much for me to process at the moment or like I'm too tired. And I wasn't very tired. My Friday was busy, but in like short bursts. And so I was kind of relaxed and I was like, okay, let's like give us this energy that I have because it's worth that. So. That's awesome. I actually, my always improving is a little bit similar. I'm not going to be talking about foils so if you were expecting that on this podcast you know uh just go to my twitter uh but i did play five color bring to light on math this week at an rcq and mason i also uh was finding myself overwhelmed by a deck that deck is really difficult and uh you know i've played five color yorion in the past and one of the things that that deck did a really good job of doing is like yorion kind of cover was like kind of a a really good way to shut the door or as well as like covering your weaknesses in a lot of spots because you just have a 5-4 noodle, right? The deck was 
really hard in like ways that are a little bit different. Like I've played a lot of five color decks in standard and throughout my time in magic and, but the importance of your sequencing of your lands in this deck, uh, you don't always want to grab your trilands. Like you, you always, so for example, in five color or four color creativity, you almost always grab a triumph first, no matter what, just to set up Ren. And in this deck, that's not always true. You might not want to be grabbing a Triumph first because you might be playing in Scam, and they actually are going to Blood Moon you, and you need to be able to cast your white spells to deal with the Blood Moon, uh, stuff like that. And I don't know, th that part was like, okay, so this is, this is happening. I need to be aware of this. There's also just the what to grab with Bring to Light is actually a much harder decision than I thought it was going to be. Like, you know, the moments where you're going to grab Verdict or whatever, that's pretty easy. The moments where you're going to grab Omnath and trigger a land drop or whatever, that's pretty easy. But outside of those moments, it's actually a pretty difficult decision to know what to grab and when. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting and a little bit overwhelming for somebody who had a little too much to drink on Friday night. Yeah, and you haven't been, you know, like, you've been preparing for RCQs, but you haven't been playing them as much, so, like, you haven't been having that experience with like the round timer and everything in the. Oh like, yeah, this you know is, what I mean. Like, yeah, this was my first RCQ of this season. I'm pretty sure. And that sounds right from our, our conversation. Yeah, at least. and honestly, like I did go to time once uh, in round one, and that was that was all that I went to time. But it definitely was like. It's not like constantly in your face. Like when you play this deck on MPGO, it's pretty easy to see your timer. You're able to like, you know, do things pretty quickly. There's not conversation and banter going back and forth. Like you're just clicking away. And it actually, I think, is a little bit easier to play that deck online than it is in paper. Uh, for one, because people do not know when to concede. It's like wild. You're like, I'm just, I've discarded a hand size three times. My hand is literally entirely interaction. Like you, you will not win this game, but they still refuse to give up. So it's really interesting. Yeah, also the, the shuffling too, right? Like that's kind of Oh, the, yeah, there's so much shuffling. But like, I, I think Magic Online and Magic and Paper are comparable a lot of the times uh, when it comes to like the time of actions outside of shuffling. You know what I mean? Like stack stuff versus like being able to verbalize. I think it all evens out. But shuffling, there's just no it, instantaneous versus like, you know, even if you're quick, eight, nine seconds, it, it does add up, especially in a written six stack. Yeah, you're, you're going to shuffle a lot. Uh, but that's it. Like, it, it was really more getting getting back into the zone, going back to an RCQ. And honestly, I think I picked a deck a little too committal for my first event in, like, months, like, since I played Rhinos. Would you say an Epilocharty controlly version of your deck might have been a little easier? Oh, I mean, Blue Eye would have been way easier. <laughs> That's not yeah. even. That's not even I, debatable. Saying, you know, I try to help my friends out. It's, all I'm saying. It's, all I'm saying. it's not even debatable. <laughs> oh man, the amount that you like being right is the amount that I like winning matches of magic. Well, must be not that much. I'm here just to help you, buddy. This one's always a free moment for you to realize your Mason's got your best interest in heart. Abe's always a free moment this week. By the way, was a sushi uh, draft tier list on Twitter. So check that out at More No Things. He's not here this week, but he'll be back next week. Yeah, work stuff came up this week, but we miss you, Abe. You know who we uh, are happy to have, though, is Alex. Alex is our newest patron of $5 or more, meaning giving Alex access to the Discord. Uh, Alex, thank you so much. If you want to become a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Just for $1 a month, you get access to this live. We're recording on Monday. Uh, we usually start the live show 
just after uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time. You know, $5 gets you access to the Discord. But you can be part of the fantasy draft that we did. There's lots of fun stuff going on, lots of conversations. So head on over. But today, Mason, we're talking Pioneer. Uh, it's been a while. We've been focusing on modern for modern RCQ season. Where do we start here? Should we, do we start with, you know, kind of a look at the Frank Carson tweet from the RCs? Do we start with the, the decks? Where do you want to start? I think the biggest thing to start with is just quickly talking about Wild of Eldraine's impact on Pioneer. Because, you know, if you've been listening to content and stuff like that for a while, I would say about four months ago, right before Lord of the Rings, there was some conversation about, like, well, something probably needs to happen in Pioneer. Because unless, like, Wilds of Eldraine and Lost Caverns of Ixalan really affect the RC, I'm sorry, the uh, the Pioneer, the RC format's going to probably look very similar. And typically, you know, Standard sets don't always have a huge impact on internal sets. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but like it varies. Wild of Eldrin has had a real impact on Pioneer with sleight of hand adding a lot of power and consistency to the Phoenix decks. The heroic decks got a big upgrade with the uh, monstrous roll um, removal spell. I think it's called like Unleash the Fury or something like that. Um, and then the Convoke deck also got a big upgrade in both Imperial, I'm sorry, Imidine's Recruiter and uh, Regal Bunnycorn. And so three decks that are good against Mono Green all got significant upgrades. And then Mono Green got like the Turtle, which is debatable. And then other decks got some other smaller stuff. So the big thing to notice is that Mono Green has a lot of Predators on the rise in like very real ways because they got big upgrades. And that has shifted things where Green is probably the worst it's been in a while. I think it's still a really good deck. We'll get into that. But you know, things are moving in Pioneer in a way that a lot of people were not expecting four or five months ago. It's really hard to expect. You didn't even mention Up the Beanstalk and Ecumenic Flyers, which was already a deck that just dumpstered Monogreen anyway. Yeah, the only reason I did is because there's been some weird contention with that. Like, some lists play four, some play zero. Like, Derek Davis, who top-aided the Pro Tour, talked about this past weekend on the NRG. We had him as a feature match, and he was against the card because he felt like he was building his deck too much in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that he also said that might have just been his error in deck building, and like maybe he needed to pull away from it, but he decided to revert back away from Beans in a real way. So I do think that it is a big thing, but it is less of like a slam dunk, like mass sure. adoption, like these other cards have. And, you know, I also don't want to give all the goodies away right away, baby. You know? Yeah, yeah, so. that's fair, that's mm-hmm. fair. Well, let, let's talk about the format. Uh, I'm just pulling up, uh, if you guys don't follow Frank Karsten, you folks don't follow Frank Karsten on Twitter, uh, he does a really good job breaking down formats by different time periods. Between Europe and Canada, we had uh, 11.8 uh, Rakdos, 10.7 Mono Green, uh, 8.9 or Sacrifice, 7.4 Phoenix, 6.6 Mono White, uh, 6.1 Azorius, and then kind of Lotus Field and Blue White to kind of round out those top decks along with, you already mentioned, Boros uh, Heroic, all with about 4.3 to 4.1. Yeah, Boros Convoke as well, 3.8. Yeah. Right there too. So the Boros and Azorius decks kind of very similar, uh, like to each other, I should say. Yeah. So when I when I look at this, we didn't really mention, well, we did mention one deck that I, I really want to highlight. Maybe that's that's that we should talk about first, uh, Going, going out of order on our, our thing, but uh, just birds, man. Like, it is quite impressive to me, kind of looking through Calgary and through France, what, how, how the impact that just a really good 
cantrip for, to give the deck consistency does for this deck. Yeah, one of the big things is because, like, if you're at home and you haven't played a ton of Pioneer recently, or maybe not a ton of Arclight Phoenix in the past, and you're thinking, what, what's up with Spencer? They already had Opt and Consider. Opt, Opt isn't super strong. The best thing about it was kind of triggering Ledger Shredder on your opponent's turn or a thing in the ice on your opponent's turn after you interact a little bit. Um, but outside of that, you know, Sleight of Hand gives you a lot more of the information up front. And typically, a big thing that would happen is you're trying to chain spells in one turn. And so being able to start your turn with the sleight of hand and know exactly which of these two will chain together leads to a lot more of your Phoenix coming back and a lot more Phoenix coming back on turn three. There's some debate on 10, 11, or 12 cantrips right now, but no matter, even if you just play two more, that makes it what turn three, turn four, bringing back Phoenixes is actually very easy to do in a way that was not uh, consistently doable before because you only had eight of those one mana cantrips. So that has really changed it along with the pick pocket sprite. So, Talk about pickpocket sprite. Yeah, so that's a card uh, that there uh, is some debate still between players going on. But the adventure mode of that card is free the Fey, which is uh, mill four cards and add an instant sorcery or fairy from it and put it in your hand. And that's instant speed for a one and a blue. And then this card is a one three for one and a blue with vigilance. So um, it's kind of taken the place of pieces of the puzzle for some players, whereas an instant speed way to sort of end of turn, fill up the graveyard that helps play around some cards and hate cards. And then you get that sort of pieces thing without having to commit three mana on your main phase, which also means you can hold up counter magic more. Also, uh, one of the weird things about it is the way it reads, it doesn't seem like it would do this, but it actually beats graveyard hate. So like you can play it and then you will still get the card from a resting piece or a ley line of the void being in play, which isn't intuitive, but it's how it works. Uh, I'll talk to a judge. And so, there's been a lot of debate between players and a lot of different directions you can go. And like that sort of card really helps with, uh, I think in general, as one way to approach things, but also is nice for the Demi Lich builds of the deck, which are just trying to turbo through at very quick speeds and get Demi Lich going. And, you know, there's just a lot of different directions to take Phoenix. I, we've talked about on the show uh, how, you know, at least I, I believe Phoenix to be a fundamentally broken deck if it goes uninterrupted. And there's just players are just now starting to really adapt to Phoenix being back in the format in a real way because there hasn't been much attention on the format. So players who were you know in the streets or whatever on Magic Online, they knew that Phoenix was a good deck. But there's a lot of different ways for the deck to go now. It's gotten a little bit better. And all these things add up, I think, to make Phoenix like a much more real player than it was previously, even though I do think it was a pretty solid player before. Yeah, I'm just looking at the list from the Calgary Championship where... Uh, the, the person's name is Boston, and I look at a list like this uh, that uh, it's playing. It is playing twelve cantrips, but when you look at a list and you're like, all of this makes sense. Like from like just a basic like, oh yeah, this is pretty close to how like where I would start and how where I would build it. And then you see a deck have success that usually means the deck is probably pretty strong because if it intuitively makes sense to you, and then it also does well, right? Like. I think that most of our listeners, uh, and I, I mean, I'll be able to speak for myself, I think that I'm good enough at Magic to be able to look at a list and be like, okay, nothing here is like super weird or out of place. Um, and also, it's the deck that gets to play Delve Spells. And like, that's just really strong. Yeah, and it also, um, it has like a lot of data behind it too. But one of the things I sometimes don't like about the data is we'll have things like the Pro Tour, where it's like, do you know what the winningest deck in Modern was? The Pro Tour, Spencer? It was Merfolk with 80%, because it played 10 games and it went 8-2, and two, which is great, not the largest sample size. If you look at the Phoenix sample size here, 
it had a 52.3% win rate, which is a good win rate. Very happy to have that, especially in like a kind of mid-range interactive deck. And it has 262 wins and 239 losses. That's just over 500 games played with the deck. That's a good sample. Like, you know, this is only two RCs. There's only so much to them. Some of these are smaller than other ones, right? So, like, that's a pretty good sample size. That is telling. And we're seeing that, you know, with this information happening, there have been tournaments since then. Phoenix has still done well on Magical Line. At the NRG this past weekend, it was the only deck to have multiple copies in the top eight with others, you know, in the top 16 as well. Um, and also differing builds as well. So Phoenix is a deck that is doing well and is showing up in a real way. And I think the, the ultimate test here, I'm curious what your thoughts are, Spencer, is historically when this happens, players put in cards like Go Blank from the Black Interactive decks, and that was always the killer for Phoenix, was a Go Blank undid your pieces of the puzzle, which is sort of your best card in your enabling engine piece against them, that then you couldn't really overpower them. I do think side of hand might help you more consistently find your sideboard pivots, but I'm curious what your thoughts are because I, I don't know, and uh, I'm interested to see sort of how people are thinking about it because I do think it's kind of a hive mind moment, you know? Well, if you ask Derek, you already supposed to play Go Blank because he had them and was ready. <laughs> um, well, because he saw a magical line with the Phoenix is doing well. Right. I, I, think, yeah. I, I think that the Phoenix deck has a lot more, like, consistency now. So I'd be interested to see, like, what the the like the high the the high cantrip count decks can do with like you know I, I noticed that there was three crackling drakes for example in this sideboard and stuff like that and like I would be interested to see how the deck can adapt to just kind of staying like this cantrippy mid rangey deck that like has a lot of card selection rather than trying to like I don't know do something like transformational or something. Sorry, so you're saying. You don't like the Crackling Drakes, or you do? I, I do sure. like the Crackling Drakes. Gotcha. Yeah, I also really like the Crackling Drake stuff. I thought that Zoomers don't come at me. I thought the Zoomer Drake deck was great. I love the Zoomers. Please don't hurt me. For, like, a weekend, but was, like, not a very good deck, like, overall. And Slide of Hand does fix some of my problems with that of, like, actually finding the interaction you want, actually serving a plan, and having, like, you know, extras of that you know, lets you find your ones and your two of more often and play a real game. So it's really interesting. I'm really excited to see how this sort of plays out. And, you know, one of the interesting things about this is, is we're doing a check-in now because the some of y'all have Pioneer RCs all over the world leading up to it. But for us on the show, our Pioneer RC isn't for uh, basically two months from now, just under that at the time of this recording. Yeah. So there's a lot of data. We're going to get a lot of it. And there's a whole other set coming. So it's going to be really curious to see sort of how these things evolve and change as players learn about them. Because that's, that's a cool part of Magic with the metagames and stuff. Should we move on to Black Red? It seems like a natural next step. Uh, a deck mm -hmm. that honestly just keeps making its way back in in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, this this deck has, has the juice, man. It, like, it just constantly figures out a configuration that can attack a metagame, and it doesn't matter if it's Derek Pike or if it's other people, it still finds a way, uh, you know, like a, like a dinosaur to, to come back. Yeah, I think one of the good things about the Righteous Midrange deck that sometimes the Phoenix deck has a problem with, because uh, I think they are pretty close to similar decks for what it's worth, this the way they play out games. Rakdos, like, I don't care how bad your matchup is, you can't just go... Thoughtseize, Blood Tithe Harvester, Bone Crusher, Giant, Children, you know, and like your opponent mulligans. And if you have the right sideboard and you're sort of well-tuned in the format, uh, all those things are going to work out well for you. And 
it's weird because there have been some matchups that have recently gone really well. I got a lot better, like the fire stick, for example, like, you know, whether you want Beanstalks or not, more people are looking towards fires and that is an awful matchup. It's gotta be Rakdos's worst matchup by so much, but also some of its better matchups have been doing well, right? Like Phoenix, if you play a couple of go blanks uh, in your sideboard, that really helps that matchup. Boris heroic is a really good matchup. It's really popular. Spirits is doing well this. Mm -hmm. Yes. Spirits. I feel bad for spirits players because they're like, they see the dynamic fires players and then heroic and Phoenix come out from behind and go pop, 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 pop. And they're like, ah. it, every time, every time I want to pull the trigger on spirits again, I'm like, Oh, maybe, maybe not the time. It, it reminds me of those cartoons where there's like the, the, the bait, you know? And then like, as soon as you get close to spirits, they pull the string and then the box falls on top of them. And the box is like a Phoenix in the situation. Either way, it, there's like, just the Rakdos deck is good. It has good solid cards and it has good interaction and it's well developed. And also players know it really well, right? Like some people like Ginger, uh, Derek Pike, have just been playing it all the time. And like, you know, he top aided his, I believe, fifth of six Pioneer RCs he's played. Now with the deck, right, his conversion rate's insane and he's consistently proved it over multiple metagames. You know, this deck is good. And if you play it well, you will succeed. Is it always the best choice? No. Is it one of the safest choices always? Currently, yes. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add to this deck. I think that it is an interesting spot in the format where, I mean, if we look at, like, Derek's list, uh, he's got, like, the Misery Shadows on the board, so he is expecting a downtick in things like Mono Green, and he's planning to bring those in, which was really smart. If you look at the way that the, the, the format played out and things like that, uh, he, he zigged while they zagged, and I really like it. Yeah, y'all, that's also another good card for Phoenix, right? You bring yeah. it in, it, and the late game, it outscales the remover early game. You can't play your Arclight Phoenix's hard cast, which is a big part of that matchup. So, you know, heads up stuff by Ginger. Surprising. Uh, should we talk about the... the? I don't... I, it's so hard to call Mono Green the boogeyman at this point, but I, let's talk about it. I mean, what I said at the start of it is a lot of my thoughts, so I would love to hear what your thoughts are, and then we can maybe start the conversation. Uh, because to me, a lot of predators have gone up. The deck is not at where it was before, which in my opinion, before all these sets released, it was the deck to beat. But now, you know, like maybe it's moving down a little bit. But like if you were the actual best, and you move down two or three slots. Is that a terrible place to be? I don't know. Uh, the data is for the first time ever not supporting Modern Green being one of the best decks, uh, win rate wise, uh, with a large sample size. So, what are your thoughts, Spencer? I think that it is still asking a question that you want to be asking. The problem that I have is that I'm not convinced that, like, that, I mean, what is the data? I need to pull up the, the this is something I was wondering looking at this. So was, is it the, Phoenix the, versus Monogreen? And it looks uh, like, it looks like Monogreen is still a slight favorite, but I, I would not put, is it Phoenix out of the running to figure that matchup out if they wanted to, and actually kind of shutting the door on Monogreen. Yeah, I kind of, I wonder too how much of that is like, that matchup is hard to play, but if you play it well, it's pretty easy for you, right? Um, I will say this, like, I think the matchup is really hard to play as Phoenix. Uh, I've played it a lot and I've lost a fair bit uh, to Mono Green. You can just have it happen, but I do think it is something where like, you kind of have to know when you can go for things and when you can't and what you can and can't be in a way that sometimes it's like hard to know even at the RC level, like, were players running into that because there's also just a lot more Phoenix than there is monitoring right now, like yeah. being played. One of the things that I have I, I've struggled with for as long as 
people try to find slots in mono green is like their favorite thing to do is just cut oath of Nisses. They're just like, oh yeah, just cut an oath of Nisses. Just cut an oath of Nisses. And I think that people uh, underestimate the value that oath of Nisses brings to the consistency of the deck, both in being able to consistently find your Nykthos, uh, consistently being able to find the Planeswalker that you need to either combo off or to to chain. And I don't know, I I almost think that we're like I know it's only like three cards, but I think we're going too far away from stock green. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I have played some green uh, since the release of Wild Eldrain in a paper tournament that I won, like one of those little uh, Apex gaming, I think they're like three Ks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was post Wild of Eldrain, and I played Mono Green and I won, and my deck hadn't changed in seven months. Right. You know what I mean? And like, I'm not saying that I had the best deck list or that's even good data. More of what I'm saying is, I find it hard to believe a lot of these things solve problems. And I, my biggest contention point with the mono green players at large has been their arguments don't support their claims and they don't make sense for solving the problems they typically say. Yeah, I just you know don't I mean? believe the blossoming sort of solves anything for this deck. I, I think it is a good way to have an advantage in the mirror because you find your cityscapes, your storms, and your Nykthoses more because you have more cards that do that, but not if you're cutting Oath of Nessa. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yes. Like, I'm yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, so like if you have four and four oaths and I have one turtle and you don't have a turtle, I think I'm probably favored if I'm on the play with a turtle. But I also just believe that like creatures controlling the battlefield is what matters. So having a lot of pollutants is what matters. I'm willing to believe that weekend to weekend that isn't true. People consistently claim that's not true in general. And then I watch them just lose matchups a lot, which yeah. is like not the greatest argument I have on my point, but also I'm on a podcast talking to you, DM me, we have a real conversation. You know, so like, should we uh, should we talk about the deck that uh, the people be asking about in the Discord? Uh, Gruel Vehicles did very well at the European RC and went undefeated in the Swiss at the NRG this past weekend. Lost a little bit of a heartbreaker in the uh, top eight. You can watch that one on coverage if you want to ban auras. Um, but I, I think that deck is good um, and had that player. I think not been so tired they probably would have made it to our top four and i think the huntsman's redemption is a great add to this deck um there's another three drop you can easily cast you know your deck wants to be one into three and having things like pack leader and ooze were nice but they didn't like really fit what was going on and sometimes led to awkward draws and made your elves less impactful and it's going huntsman's redemption you know play it chapter two you float the mana from your elf you play the thing you search whatever and then the next chapter you know you get that plus two plus two and you slam that's really good. And the things like, well, they're in Thrillseeker, that's a huge burst of damage. You know, we saw this on coverage where, like, person has the 3-3, three, three, it gets plus 2, plus 2, they support it, they get plus 2, plus 2 more, attack for 7, flank for 7 more. That's such a huge swing in damage that, you know, if you're a deck that can't get in the way of that, you're going to die. Yeah, not too long ago, people were asking about, like, Spencer, what's your thoughts on Thrillseeker versus the other effects? And I, I had swung completely around on, like, yeah, Throw Seeker makes you want to play Love Struck Beast again, which I was completely off of before before that. And like this is just playing to what the deck is trying to do even more. Um and making it kind of this real aggressive mid-range deck still, rather than the I don't know, like the the mishmash of things that was it was trying to do too many things at once. Um mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, this deck now I'm really, really happy to like play a crone war in it again in the main which i think is really important for the deck overall 
I, I think the deck is in a really good position. It, uh, it's, Chrono War plus Huntsman Redemption is also a real combo. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Uh, why? So you have Chrono War take their thing. Oh, sure, then, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you sack it to the Redemption. Like, like it. It is definitely not why you're playing those two cards, but like just it nice. is, you would play both those cards. Yeah, now you just like got removal in your deck, which is like huge. Sometimes you know you take their Chrono War, you hit them, they stabilize a little bit, and you can't actually kill them. So yeah, I, I think this deck is in a really good position. Um, also, you know, one of those moments where the monitoring gets a little bit lower, you know, people will be trying to play things like Igmatic Fires and, and, you know, stuff like that, where you get to really, you know, beat down, um, you know, there are times, you know, you're one of those decks that's happy blocking with your elves. So like those little weenie decks, like not as happy to play against you as they might be, uh, other elf decks. So there's a, there's a lot going for it. Mm-hmm. It's a solid deck. It, I, I'll say this, uh, I have not been the highest in the deck a lot of points, and I think when Modern Green Sides peak, I don't know why you'd play this over that. But that being said, this deck has consistently done well every RC season, and I think is one of those decks that really rewards fundamental gameplay like we talked about last week. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Rakdos Sack. This deck really suffers from Phoenix on being on the rise. That is a really bad matchup. And Rakdos Sack, you know, at the end of the last RC season, a lot of players are like, oh, yeah kind of been the best version of Rakdos, couldn't beat the green matchup. Furnace Reigns does enough. We're pretty happy with it. Basically, I, I kind of agreed with a lot of that uh, on, like, broad strokes levels. Phoenix being rising up in the metagame makes this a lot of a worse choice. Uh, and some other small things moving as well, like Fires, you know, going up makes this matchup harder. Um, but overall, I think Rakdos Sacrifice is still a good, solid deck, and if you like playing Sacrifice and you play it well, you know, you got my thumbs up, whatever, at being a reasonable deck gamer. But it's not my favorite choice right now by a little bit. And um, you definitely can't just get run over. I've always struggled with this deck in the form of, like, if it doesn't come together, your deck is, like, clunky as all can be in a format where I don't know that... I don't think you have time for... Obviously, Discipline Mulligan's help, and I want to just be clear that I understand that that's really important with this deck, and that it is one of those decks that... Like mono green, you know, they're really mulligan with, but it it if you get broken up, it feels like it, it it's it's two sides of a pendulum. Like you're either like going off, things are happy go lucky, or you're on the other side and you're like, I don't even know what sequence of draws could get me out of this game. Yeah, I, I think critical mass decks typically that's like a thing that goes wrong for them. And the real strength of the sacrifice deck is that cat plus oven dominates like your opponent trying to aggress you on the right. ground and so that would buy you a lot of time because for a while the ground is all that mattered in pioneer um and specifically going tall not wide right if spencer has a five five and i have a cat well then nice deck idiot but if spencer has like three three threes and i have a cat i'm like st i'm stemming the bleeding but i am falling behind right and we're seeing things that like are doing more of that we're seeing things that go way over the top. So even if you assemble your synergies, it's not working. And then we're seeing things like Phoenix just fly over. And yeah. so it's like, oh, all of these things are making my position a lot worse. And a lot of my natural predators are also leaving the format because they are losing to these things as well, which is creating like this knock-on effect. Yeah. The next deck, I think, won one of the events, and that is the Lotus Combo. Uh, Mason, where do you stand on Lotus Combo today? If you're talking about Lotus Combo, it's not the right time to be playing Lotus Combo. Like, if you go and look at, like, the energy sideboards, like, so many people had so many damping spheres. 
I, I stand by this. Lotus Field is a deck that can win a tournament and is strong, but if players have the hate for you where the format is leading in a really aggressive stance, it is not good for you. If the format is like a bunch of Fires and Phoenix and Rakdos, thumbs up, go into town. If they don't have hate for you, they're going to lose to you incredibly easily. But in the real world, I don't think things happen like that a whole lot. So I think if you hear a bunch of people talking about Lotus from a co- like content creator, if you hear me talking about it, you hear Jerry, Dom, whatever, blah, 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 that's probably not the time to play Lotus is my sort of go-to answer these days. Yeah, I wouldn't play this deck. Uh, I mean, I typically wouldn't play this deck, but I think the rise in Index that can like just turn things sideways and kill you and like, you know, it it's just not the right time. And there are certainly times where I had to bite the bullet, and I was like, oh, I was wrong. Like, this deck was good this weekend. But I just, uh, like, you have to remember that these these RCs were weeks ago now as of the time of the recording, and, like, you know, energies have happened. Um, you know, big, big $5,000 side events from uh, the the Laughing Dragon events have happened. Like, there, there are big events happening in Pioneer still, and people are still using those to prepare for their upcoming RCs. This is just not one of those. This is not currently one of those times that I would play this deck. But that's because we're talking about it, like you said. Yeah. So here, here's what I'll say to the listeners. If when the next time we get around to Pioneer season, assuming there's no dramatic changes in the format, like new decks, bannings, whatever, and no one's talking about Lotus Field, unless we get to the part of the conversation, it's like, should we talk about Lotus Field? That's the point where you should maybe play it for your RC that weekend. If we're talking about Lotus Field, people are going to come prepared for you. And when decks, like I think, I'm not actually sure if it's the next one, but maybe we should talk about it, like Boros Heroic. Um, are on the uptick and like doing really well. Those sort of decks, goldfish as well, and they kill you a lot quicker than you kill them. You're a turn five combo deck. They are a turn three to four combo deck against you. You are going to die. Makes sense. Uh, we know about Borsa Rock. I didn't have it on the list, but it's super popular on Arena for what it's worth. I don't know if you played it Explore in the Explore use. Sometimes when I'm bored, I'll play some Mono Green in there. Holy crap, do people be using using them boros cards boros heroic i mean i think heroic is pretty good it is not great um like it's not like the best deck by any means but like lines up really well against is it phoenix uh lines up well against mono green that's like two good places to be um has some other matchups that are kind of struggling like rectos mid-range you're just kind of a dog too you're gonna have these sideboard plans that's fine but it, it is a tough matchup that puts you in a like a really skill testing position but Boris Heroic is one of those matchups where it's like your good matchups are so good. Your Phoenix matchup, your Lotus Field matchup, your green matchup, like you just barely sideboard for these matchups. You know, you're just aces against them at a like a fundamental structural level, and they can't really change to stop that without giving up versus so much else that Boris Heroic is uh I think a pretty good deck in the metagame. I, I typically say like either heroic or convoke is going to be like the right borosec to play and that oscillates week to week or whatever so but heroic i don't up. i don't have anything to add i've actually never played a game of boros heroic so i don't want to don't want to slander what i think is a pretty good deck you should try playing it some it's pretty fun i might i might give it a i might give it a couple rounds uh we already talked a little bit about enigmatic fires i don't think we need to cover too much on that deck it is the go over the toppest deck in the format and it is well positioned Probably the best positions it's ever been, but I still don't know if it's if it's the right time with with the other things that we've mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. Blue Eye Control is a deck that I think that you my and myself have been pretty anti on the show. 
Has anything changed for you? Not particularly. I don't think they got any new tools that I'm particularly happy about. And looking at the metagame... What about a whale? It's you got a whale. We're talking about Pioneer. Pioneer, yeah. Got a whale. I mean, I, you, could, I, you could play a whale. Whales aren't real. Those are mythical creatures made by Magic the Gathering. That's um, anyways, uh, no, joke aside, I, I think... Um, I guess the whale is fine. It's like a Zorius charm that's a threat that can't cantrip, but is a threat. So maybe that is great. I don't know. But I, I, basically, the only thing that's happened that makes me kind of like it from a metagame movement perspective is that your rest in pieces are a lot better with Is It Phoenix running around. However, uh, I believe that you should almost never win game one against Is It Phoenix if the Is It Phoenix player is confident. And in post sports, you have to win one of the games. Um, and that is a really hard place to be. So. So my opinion about Blue White is that I don't I think that the Lotus version is better. And so I don't see a reason to play normal Blue White. Um I think that if everybody just switched, they'd be better off with Strict Proctor in their deck. So that's that's my thought. Anything that we talked about that matters in Pioneer today that we didn't cover, Mason? I think the Boris Convoke deck is good. I know we're about to get into what we're gonna play, so maybe I can talk about it then, but those are kind of the big overarching things, I think, for the most part. I think we covered all of the decks that are really mattering. Obviously, there's a lot of decks out there. There are some things like Neoform that theoretically make a little bit of sense right now, but you're really kind of taking a shot in the dark and hoping a lot of players are moving in the, the direction that things are going. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But yeah, yeah, I, I don't have anything too big outside of Convoke to talk about. Yeah, I, I just want to mention that we didn't, that with the rise of. We, we kind of mentioned this every show, and I just want to hammer it home. Blue-red cards be good. This time, it was birds. You know, historically, we've talked about all kinds of different decks, whether it was, you know, the creativity deck, whether it was the uh, the Drake's deck. Like, blue-red cards be the, the you know, the prowess decks, whatever it is, um, knowing where to sit where your deck sits against the current best blue-red deck and also the best blue-red deck to play is often key to doing well at your RC, whether or not you're playing those blue-red cards because it impacts how you need to create your sideboard. I think that's a key that people are not talking about in Pioneer enough. What would you play, Mason? Uh, I play Boros Convoke. I'm pretty sure the deck is actually very well-positioned right now and strong. A big problem I had with Convoke was twofold. Well, I think it was threefold. The first is, whoever first popularized Boris Convoke, I think if you had just not said anything for a week, you would have walked to the Pro Tour, because the format was not ready for your deck, and then you, like, top the challenge, and then everyone paid attention. I think it was, like, Doomwake and Pygonti are those players, but this time around, if you, oh, don't play, don't play, be cool, be cool. But um, and the two of the problems were, one is that your deck only had a few cards that were actually strong. So you had all your Convoke creatures, those cards were good, and your Reckless Bushwhackers had the ability with Burning Tree Emissary to produce some really absurd draws. And that was good. And that was about all you had. And really two of those cards need to be together at the right time. They fall off pretty hard. And I, I didn't like it enough there. And this, you know, the format was really prepared for Boros Convoke. Like people were really playing it. I played Main Deck Brotherhood set as like a card in my deck. So that's an example of like what's going on there. That is not the case right now. And a lot of the format looks very similar uh, when it comes to removal wise to what it did when Boros Convoke first popped up. And the Convoke deck got two big upgrades. The first is Emidine's Recruiter. It is a uh, three mana, two, three, that when it ETBs gives all the creatures plus one, plus zero in haste. 
This is a draft all-star from Webb. It also has, for five mana, make two, two, two knights with Vigilance. So it does have some flood protection, which is something you actually do appreciate with this deck. Um, but you really, I would just play it for the creature part, and the knights are vanilla, like vanilla ice cream on the side. Um, the other big thing is Regal Bunny Corn. So this is that creature that just gets bigger for each permanent on the battlefield. I, I kind of compare it to Tarmogoy. For if you just believe keyword big is good, Bunny Corn is a good card. I believe Bunny Corn to be good. And once you have Bunny Corn in your deck, Ember Cleave actually becomes a really appealing card because before your Ember Cleaves were like really spiky. You had eight good cards and that was it. So you would see some sideboard Ember Cleaves for matchups where you had to go super duper fast, but that was it. Now with Bunny Corn, you actually have a you know 11 to 12 depending on how many Bunny Corns you play, things that wear Ember Cleave well. And Ember Cleave's not awful with your other things. You just kind of need to have a critical mass of things to believe in the Cleave. So it's really pushed me in that direction. And the Convoke deck has been very good. Um, it's surprisingly good against the Phoenix deck. You have thing, you have problems with cards like Thing in the Ice, and Brotherhood's End, if you don't play around it well, will get you. But once you start adapting to the matchup and learning, uh, I have found it to be not untenable, which is a really nice place to be. And they do struggle against some of your draws that are more like put a Loxon into play, you know, where like play a couple one-drops, play a Bunny, you know, your bunny counts non-creature permanents too, so the clues and the bloods count. So it is a winnable matchup. It is just not um, your favorite matchup. But overall, I like a lot of what the bunny corn, what the bunny blade deck is doing. Excuse me. I play gruel. I think this is the best position. It's been a long time. It's my favorite deck, so I would just, I would jam it so fast. Yeah. All right, that is going to do it for the main topic. If you want to join the conversation, you can become a patron of $5 or more to get access to the Discord, where you can ask questions like Adrian, who says, when looking through decks on MPGO, what is the most important things you're looking for? Is it flex slots? How many of an archetype made top eight or top 16? Is there presence of an individual card, a common interaction suite, or other things? Misa? I mean... I think you listed a lot of them there, Adrian. I'm looking at lots of things like that. You know, like, what are the flex slots? Like, we talked about this before, but, you know, to use Scam as an example, there are kind of two flex slots in the main, and you see, like, Blood Moons and Croxas, or, like, Terminate Croxa, Terminate Blood Moon, like, all these little things. Um, you know, some Shieldreds popping up recently. So there are flex slots there, so I'm curious what players are doing with that. I'm curious on the representation of the deck, right? Did this deck uh, have a lot of people playing it? How did they do? Sort of how are they building their sideboards? How did it seem they wanted to approach the matchup? All of those things are things I care about, and I'm really just wanting to get an idea of how players are thinking about cards and sort of their approach to playing games. So what about you, Spencer? I'm almost always looking at sideboards when I'm looking at decks of MTGO, and Mason mentioned like a lot of the reasons why. It helps me understand like what, what matchups they're, they think are important right now. It helps me understand how they think those matchups should play out, and really understanding, like, okay, uh, and, and then talking about it with people. Usually when I'm looking at deck lists, I'm like sending them to either Matt or Quentin or, uh, you know, responding to Mason or there's, there's lots of different people that you can talk to about lists. And when you're sending somebody a list, I think that the things that you talked about, like those conversation starters will help you understand what you should be looking for more in lists. Um, I know that's not really what you were asking, but that is, that is, that is kind of what I'm looking for is the things to, to talk about uh, to help me understand the list and to help me, be better at that archetype. YouTube is another way you can join the show. You can leave a comment or a question. This one is from Travi McDowell. I'm going to say Travi McDowell. Uh, 19 or 9356 says, I enjoy the great content you guys put out every week. It helps me become a better magic player. I have a question. I'm trying to get into Pioneer. 
Is there uh, is it better for me to pick up one of the known decks in the format or play a homebrew that I have more fun playing? Uh, I think that depends on your goals. Like, you know, if you have a homebrew in Pioneer that you think can win versus some of the things that we've laid out, like the questions that Monogreen asks, the the versatility of something like Phoenix or the other blue-red decks or the Rakdos mid-range deck, and then also can combat the aggro of things like a mono-white or gruel, go for it. Like, play your homebrew. But if you're, like, trying to learn the ins and outs of the format and, like, what to expect, I like to, to try to maybe start with, uh, you know, di different decks and uh, that are that are well-known and, and try to understand the format from the perspective of that archetype. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like a lot of what Spencer said there. I really want to hammer home the what are your goals, right? When you ask this question on our competitively slanted Magic the Gathering podcast about strategy and improving, I'm going to assume your goals are winning. But your goals might just be, for right now, I want to learn the format and I just want to go play locals with my friends on Wednesday. Totally valid goal. If you want to do that, go and do that. Um, I think sometimes what I kind of hear in where I'm reading between the lines maybe with this is like, can I succeed with these sort of decks and do that, you know? And the answer is you probably won't succeed at the highest level with your brew, but you might do pretty well. And like, what do you really want to do? And also, if you just want to play the cards you own for a while and then test and learn other things on the side and figure out what you want to buy, that's also a totally reasonable way to do it. I think so often players think the only way they can learn about decks or engage in learning in a format is by playing those decks but you can read articles consume content read over deck list think about how they play you know watch others play like there's just a lot of things you can do in order to learn about a format and hopefully today's uh episode helps you understand pioneer a little bit more and can help you down that decision point i love it if you want to join the conversation head on over to the patreon discord the public discord the, the, the ways that we mentioned here or you can hit us up on twitter at ccmtg the rest of the network right now is drafting archetypes of podcast by Sam Black. He goes every week and dives deep into archetypes, and this has been one of his best seasons so far. Highly recommend the show. Like, sub, comment, review. One of the best ways to support the show without putting those dollars into Patreon. Yeah. Mason, where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. Find me at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. I did some streaming this week, actually, with the Convoke deck. So that was pretty fun. If you want to go check out those lives, you can do that. Find me each and every week at Card Kingdom, writing about something. This week I'm writing about Commander, though. So you probably aren't going to be too interested if you're a podcast listener. Maybe you are. Uh, you can reach out to me for coaching. Uh, you can do it on Twitter, like we talked about, which is at Mason Clark. Or you can reach out via email. Let's just MasonEClark at gmail.com. Put coaching in the description. That way I know where we sent you. And Spencer, where can they find you? Find me at Heasy Media or Heasy Game on Twitter. Uh, you can find me since 13 each basically everywhere else. I have uh, maybe a couple coaching slots left. I appreciate everybody reaching out after last week. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to do that. You can find Abe at More Nothings. And Mason, what did you learn on the show this week? I'm not even on the show this week. So you go first. I'm having a moment. I'm having a crisis. I think that the, the thing that I learned on the show this week is just the ability for Magic players to adapt quickly, if you look at kind of the energy and its reactionary status to things like the RCs, you know, we live in a way different time of Magic where a few years ago it would take weeks and weeks for paper to catch up to something like these RCs. But I, I think that's actually happening a lot faster these days. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I really like that. I think I have learned and 
just in general that players are really quick to say something is dead when it's not, especially if they don't like it. You know, anything that moves the needle along that line and kind of like looking over the data, looking at everyone, taking a bit examining the preparation for the show, you know, the way it's made out to me about how Mono Green did versus how it actually did. Yeah, know. where it like still had a top eight in one of them and like did it okay. Yeah. Yeah, like it's just totally reasonable when people act like it's just dead, you know. Everyone's going to gun for the top dog, obviously. And so when the top dog moves even a little bit, people care a lot. But I really care about everyone surrounding the throne as well, much like Game of Thrones. You can't be looking only at the Iron Throne. You got to be looking out for Littlefinger. Yeah, you're going to get poisoned if you do it that way. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. We'll see everybody next week on another episode of Constructed Criticism.